Welcome to the Taking Cancer On podcast, brought to you by Beringer Ingelheim and presented by me, Sebastian Hermelin. In this series, we seek to demystify the role of Big Pharma in developing cancer treatments, and in doing so, I want to take you on a deep dive into the lives of our very special guests. What are their North Stars? Why are they so committed to what they do? And what are their hopes for the future? Join us on this journey and remember to subscribe to the series and share the podcast with others who are inspired to take cancer off. In this episode, I'm honored to welcome to the show an incredibly inspiring lung cancer patient who's living out in the US called Keith. He's going to take us through his cancer journey so far, sharing with us some of the highs and the lows that he's experienced and what he's done to get himself to where he is today. I'm excited to dive in. So Keith, can you tell us a bit more about yourself uh, and your life before being diagnosed with cancer? Sure. Uh, So now I'm a a 53-year-old, happily married father of two uh, young adult daughters. And uh, prior to prior to cancer, I I actually use the the term PC quite often, pre-cancer and post-cancer. I was a relatively healthy, uh, active uh, individual. Um, I've been working in the same job for the last 25 years now uh, and uh, loved to go out and play baseball on the weekends. And, um, you know, everything seemed to be going quite well uh, uh, up until uh, early 2018 when these strange symptoms started to appear that no one seemed to understand what was happening. And what what were those symptoms? How did they occur? They they were uh, 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 an undiagnosed cough, periodic cough that didn't seem to have any particular trigger or cause behind it. Um, I I had strange pains in my neck and shoulder, which we tried different things to uh, to relieve that. A really strange one. I developed an incredible aversion to salt. And I've talked to the doctors and they've never heard of that before. But if if I tried to eat a McDonald's French fry, I would start coughing instantly. Anything that was incredibly salty would cause me to start to cough. And there was no rhyme or reason for it. But uh, and and then uh, a strange pain uh, in my my lower back, which actually ended up being the the trigger that, that caused some further investigation that that discovered what I was dealing with. Okay. And you mentioned PC, you were quite an active guy. What does that mean? Like how active were you? I've always uh, participated in sports from the time I was a child. And it's something that has just been part of my lifestyle. Uh, and I, I love doing it. And my family uh, developed a very active lifestyle too. We love going camping we love going backpacking. I had actually previously run two marathons, but that was a long, long time ago. That was back around 2000. Okay, so you had an aversion to salt, you started coughing. So how did that lead up to the diagnosis? It was actually a, a vacation that we took as a family that led to discovering what was wrong because um, on the flight home, uh, I had this horrible pain in my back, which I had just attributed to sleeping on strange beds and sitting in a seat on coach and trying to sleep on a plane. And But my my back was just killing me. 
And when I told my doctor back home about it, he, he said, oh, you, you had chest pain while you're on a plane flight? I said, no, no, it was my lower back. It wasn't my chest. And he goes, no, no, no. We need to look and make sure you don't have a pulmonary embolism. And I said, oh, well, okay, if you really think we need to do that. Um, so they did one test and, and then they said, I, I think we need to do a CT scan. So they did. And, uh, you know, lo and behold, they said, good news. Uh, you don't have a pulmonary, pulmonary embolism. Bad news is you've got this other thing that we're not sure what it is, but you have this mass in the center of your chest and uh, we're going to need to figure out what's wrong. And from then on, how long did it take until you until you received the news of what it actually was? You know, it it took about a month before they finally came back and uh, were able to tell us exactly what it was. And, and they said it's uh, non-small cell lung cancer and you have a, about a golf ball sized tumor high up in your chest right off of the, the main bronchial airway on the left hand side. So during those weeks of not really knowing what it was, did you have any idea that it could be cancer? Were you made aware of the fact that it could be cancer or did you sort of Google that yourself or what was those couple of weeks like? It, it was a couple of weeks of, of really uncomfortable emotional time, uh, not knowing exactly what it was. Uh, your mind spirals into any different direction and it's really challenging not to go to the worst case scenario and dwell on that. Of course, the worst case scenario for most people is cancer. And, you know, that's exactly what it turned out to be. It's really unsettling for everyone uh, because you, you don't know at that point, any plans you had for the future just immediately go on hold. Trying to concentrate on work at yeah. that point, I have to tell you, it's impossible. I, I mean, it imagine. really is. Yeah. I, I kept going into the office and I just felt like I was in a daze. It's just a really unsettling time. I mean, it is the situation for most people waiting for a diagnosis. Like you think the worst, you Google your way forward to information and it's not often you you get met by the, the most positive information, right? And when they told you that you have lung cancer, what kind of treatment options were they giving you? Did you have any say in all of this or were they just handing you sort of the treatment schedule and this is going to happen or? Yeah, I, I did. I asked, I asked a variety of questions about alternatives, new therapies, immunotherapies and, and other things that are available and, and can have some, some great success. And so I was hopeful that I would qualify for, for some of those. Um, what it turns out was when I, when I talked to the doctors, they said, look, you're stage 2B and 2B is good because you can remove the cancer because it hasn't spread uh, surgically. And, and that's a great thing. It just so happens that because of where my tumor was, that surgery became more complicated. They said, look, we can remove this And we're confident we can make you cancer-free uh, if you allow us to go the surgical route and and remove the tumor. So we we did listen to the doctors and and we took their advice to to um, you know have the surgery, which unfortunately caused uh, me to lose my entire left lung, which I was not particularly thrilled about. The end result being I'm, I'm still here. I'm still cancer free. And, you know, that's, that's all a good thing. Uh, you know, we followed that with chemotherapy and then lo and behold, I actually qualified for a clinical trial 
of immunotherapy on the backside of all of this treatment to study how well applying immunotherapy after chemotherapy, after surgery, what does that do for cancer recurrence rates? So far, so good. So hopefully I'm one of those statistics that says, yes, it's uh, this is a, a good approach. So you were an active guy, but how did you react to the fact that you were going to lose 50% of your lung capacity? Uh, and how did you deal with that? Uh, initially, not very well at all. Um, I honestly thought my days of an active lifestyle were over and done with. It was actually a really hard time for me. Between cancer, uh, knowing that you have cancer and between losing a lung, uh, it, it puts you in a very mentally and emotionally difficult place. I actually was, was lying in bed a couple of days after surgery and uh, I, I was flipping through channels on the television. And I came across the broadcast for the 2018 uh, Hawaii Ironman Championships. And I sat there in bed and next thing I knew there were, there were tears just streaming down my face because that had been a dream of mine uh, for a long time. And, and then here I am lying in bed. I'm going, well, that, that dream is dead and gone. My, my wife walked into the bedroom and she said, what, what's going on? And, and I just, you know, I, I just explained, I said, I, that, that dream is dead. It's not going to happen. And, you know, she, she understood, but at the same time, she, she was going, well, we'll see about that. So it made you realize something. And this, I think this is truly inspiring because this is what I meet in a lot of my conversations with cancer patients that have gone through a really tough time. It makes them reflect on personal life choices, on things that could have been, that can't be now. Uh, but you turned this around, right? You made this into reality, in the lack of a better word. Um, how did you do that? The doctors told me um, with no uncertain terms, you need to get up and walk after surgery. And you need to get out and, and you need to move. And the primary reason for that is to prevent infection in your remaining lung. And, and that alone was, it's, it's incredibly hard because it's incredibly painful and your body is going through this massive adjustment period. And so my wife and I would literally just walk down the block and I had the hiking poles that you, you use out on the trail because I didn't have my balance and I, I couldn't do very much. So we would just walk and it, it just progressed from there. I mean, literally one step at a time, incredibly slowly. Um, but things gradually started to get better. Um, the more I walked, the more I was able to walk. And so I actually went back into the doctors and I said, Hey, do you have an exercise routine for uh, a, a post-surgical patient like me? And they looked at me and they said, you know, we don't get many post pneumonectomy patients asking for exercise routines. So no, we don't. <laughs> and, and so they said, just, just do what feels comfortable, do what feels good. And I, I actually, I looked at him and I said, what if nothing feels good? Yeah. <laughs> it's exactly how I felt. I mean, none of this felt good, which is exactly why no one tries to do it. Um, but they said, just do to tolerance what you can handle and, and keep going and, and, and see how far you can go. And so I looked at it and I said, all right, that's exactly what I'm going to do then. Okay. So you and your wife, you started by walking, taking one step at a time. 
What did that lead to and how? So we were, we were coming up on the one year anniversary of my diagnosis. And my, my wife looked at me, she goes, we need to do something big and ridiculous to, to celebrate the fact that we've made it through a year. She goes, you, you pick whatever you want to do. That's fine. And, and we'll do it. And so I said, well, let's, let's go for a bike ride together. Um, let's, let's go for a long bike ride together. Let's see how far we can go. And so we set out a route, uh, that was going to be around 40 miles, which was, that was huge at the time. As we started out on the ride, uh, we were, it was actually the very first hill where we're headed out. And there's one of these electronic billboards at the side of the road. And it says, um, next weekend, Santa Cruz Ironman triathlon road closed. And, uh, I, I honestly didn't even really see it, but my wife looks at it. She goes, Hey, maybe, maybe you should train for that. And I kind of laughed. I went, ha ha. Yeah. Right. Uh, train for a, a triathlon. <laughs> we'll, we'll see about that. Um, but so we, we went on with our ride and I mean, I was absolutely wiped out afterwards. Um, but I did it. And the, that statement that she had made about that triathlon, that thought was stuck in my head. And, and I, I honestly couldn't, couldn't get it out. You know, imagine if I could actually train for a year and I'd be in such a better place than I am now, if I, if I put in that effort. So I went back to her and I said, is it okay with you? Cause these things, they, they take a lot of time. And, uh, I asked her, I said, is it, is it okay if I, if I do this? And she said, absolutely, let's do it. And, and so we set a goal to, to finish a, a half Ironman triathlon. And then it happened. Well, it did. It took a little bit longer than I, I had thought, but, uh, when we got to Santa Cruz in September, 2021, I did do it. And I completed the swim just the way I wanted to did the bike and then, um, you know, toughed out the run and finished on the beach in Santa Cruz. And it was just a, an amazing sensation to, to be able to accomplish that. That is really cool. I'm so happy for you. And uh, I just realized I, I've literally run out of reasons not to do, run uh, just a simple <laughs> marathon myself. I have no excuse left. So I'm going to sign up for a marathon to start there. I can just imagine sort of the emotional roller coaster it must have been to to finish finish uh, such a race. Um, like, can you explain that from your perspective? Just a massive flood of emotion hit me as I you know as I turned the corner and I saw that finish line and I saw that that carpet in front of me and the people cheering. It was this combination of of joy and and relief and sadness all all at the same time to sort of letting go of all that sadness um as i crossed that that finish line i took my hat and i threw it in the air and i said take that lung cancer you know that that was my statement that uh, you're not you're not going to beat me um I'm, I'm still here and i'm still fighting really inspiring yeah and i'm pretty sure that you have uh, with this inspired someone else to at least try and complete one Briefly, just what has changed in your life? I mean, you went from being an active person to being diagnosed with cancer. What does your life look like now? A lot of it really 
doesn't look that different from the outside. What I think a lot of cancer patients go through is a change in perspective uh, on the inside. And uh, just looking for the, the joy in the everyday things. You know, I'm still aware of the statistics when it comes to lung cancer. I know this can come back. And so, you know, I uh, thoroughly enjoy every day. You know, that that is one of the things that allows me to get on the bike and get up early and go swimming is that, you know, I tell myself I am lucky to get to be able to do this. I think that's a, a perspective uh, issue that, you know, I think a lot of people take for granted in this world, the things that we do get to do. Uh, that, you know, maybe a lot of other people don't. I think that's where things have changed the most for me. Yeah. So I founded War on Cancer together with my best friend. Uh, also, he went through um, uh, blood cancer. For the past three years, uh, he has realized that he's very appreciative of the things, sort of the personal growth journey that followed. Uh, what you said, like being able to put things into perspective, uh, being more sort of appreciative uh, of the things that you actually have uh, is something that he has really sort of uh, made me understand to, to be a little bit more appreciative of, of things as well. So, Keith, you were part of a clinical trial after having undergone surgery, right? Removing the tumor, having taken part in the immunotherapy uh, treatment uh, can you tell us more about that? Like, how did you find the clinical trial? What did they do during the clinical trial? And how did you experience it? Sure. So obviously, when I was originally diagnosed, I had asked the doctors about the option for immunotherapy. And at the time, I was not a candidate based on uh, the type of cancer I had and, and the stage that I was at. But the course of treatment that they initially uh, uh, prescribed for me was surgery followed by chemotherapy. And, uh, but then after that, uh, they actually came to me and said, we have a trial where we are studying the recurrence of, of lung cancer, uh, by applying immunotherapy after chemotherapy and, and then observing patients, uh, and, and, uh, studying the recurrence rates. And so the, the treatment that I was interested in upfront that wasn't available to me then suddenly became available to me sort of on the back end. Technically, I didn't have to do this. Um, I, I supposedly was cancer free already, but uh, if you look at the recurrence rates for lung cancer, and if you look at the statistics, uh, they're daunting. This is a, a very, uh, mischievous cancer that has this way of recurring. And so I, I asked myself, I said, well, I was, I was willing to do it up front. Um, why would I not be willing to do it now, especially knowing what I know about, about recurrence rates? And so we said, yes, we'll, we'll sign up for basically a, an additional year of monthly infusions of this immunotherapy agent, okay. uh, which, which is designed to hopefully uh, cause me to be cancer-free. And yeah. uh, we'll only know that over time. And uh, so far, so good. And it's a, I think it's a beautiful thing. So basically what you're doing as well is that you're contributing to research. You want to give something back. I salute you for it. So Keith, uh, thank you for telling us about yourself uh, and your cancer journey so far. Really inspiring. Uh, it sounds like you're not... Uh, 
necessarily what most people would consider a typical uh, lung cancer patient. And I think at this point, before we get into discussing the next topic, uh, we should highlight uh, perhaps a few misconceptions uh, about uh, lung cancer and lung cancer patients, as well as some key prevalence statistics uh, and risk factors. So if we start with an overview of global prevalence, uh, lung cancer is the most common cancer overall worldwide. And by gender, it's the most commonly occurring cancer amongst men and the third most commonly occurring cancer amongst women. It also continues to be the leading cause of cancer-related deaths in both men and women worldwide. But it's widely misunderstood that lung cancer is only a smoker's disease, when in fact, a person's risk of developing lung cancer can also depend on other factors such as age, genetics, personal or family history of lung cancer, as well as an exposure to radon gas, secondhand smoke, cancer-causing agents in the workspace, and also air pollution. According to the CDC, up towards 20% of people with lung cancer in the U.S. never smoked or have smoked fewer than 100 cigarettes in their lives. And I think this is this is my, one of my own misconceptions. And I thought that lung cancer uh, came from smoking only. Uh, so that's obviously, I think, uh, a bias that, that most people have. What, what is your perception of this stigma? Has it affected you? Have people around you? asked questions about smoking, et cetera. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it's one of the first things that people ask is, is, you know, well, uh, did, did you smoke? Uh, and I think there's a part of that is, is the hope that, well, if they aren't a smoker, maybe they won't get it. Uh, and, and that unfortunately, when it comes to lung cancer, uh, even non-smokers and many non-smokers, uh, still get lung cancer. When we talk about awareness, I mean, I, it never occurred to me when I was going through my, my progression of, of symptoms that this could be lung cancer, any number of other things, but, but not yeah. that. And, yeah. and so I think if people are more aware of the fact that this can happen, it's something that they might look for a little sooner. Yeah. Uh, I now know two people who have removed a lung due to lung cancer, and they're both active and smoke-free. And I think it's important uh, that these stories get out as well to create more awareness around the disease. Jumping into sort of cancer conversations, we're obviously having a cancer conversation now, but can you tell me more about um, the support that you received? How has that changed over time? Clearly, when people find out what you're dealing with, there's, there's uh, an outpouring uh, from your your close friends and family. Um, I happen to be very, very lucky to be connected with, uh, you know, a church family and uh, an extended family that's uh, is has been incredibly supportive. Um, but, you know, what I'll also say is that going through cancer, for some people, it can be more of a private experience. For us, that was a little bit more of the case. And and I think every every family has to find that balance between being more public about what they're going through and and then handling things um, sort of with within your own family group. The support you get from from your friends, the the positive messages, the 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 hopes you get better, they they really are meaningful. That's sort of one of the things that helps boost you up, helps keep you going, you know, on on the hard days. But uh, I have to say, uh, Without my wife, there's absolutely no way I, I could have gotten through this. You know, everyone who has a, a firm and supportive 
partner in their life or or even friends that can really support them, not just, you know, drop off a meal, but through the early days, the the hard times, uh, having that person there to help you literally do everything in your life that you're ch- challenged to do. Um, it's, it's so important. And, and that's what I tell other cancer patients, but if they're just getting ready to go into surgery, I say, I reinforce, all right, who's your support group on the other side? Who's going to help you? Who's going to get you to doctor appointments? Who's going to help you get to the shower and back? Uh, those sorts of things. They're almost impossible on your own. And, and you yeah. have to have someone there to help you. Obviously you have two daughters. How did they react and sort of, how did, how did that uh, conversation go? Yeah. So one of them was still at home here uh, when we found out. Uh, The other one was off at school. They were at college. And so we were unable to be with them uh, at the time. We wanted to be there to just to, to give them a hug because hearing that sort of news about your parent uh, is clearly uh, staggering. Um, and you know, the best we could do was to do a video call with them and, and say, we have some hard news. Uh, we, we need to share it with you. We, uh, and we also need to share what we're planning to do about it, uh, because we wanted them to know that we're going to do everything for, for dad to get better. Uh, but at the same time, they're, they're off at school by themselves and they had to rely on their friends and their support group there to help get them through. And that was, that was really, really hard. Yeah. On the war on cancer app, we do have parents on the app sharing stories about how they are not able to, to share this information with their family, for example, uh, because they don't feel like that's something they can do for various reasons. Um, I'm a firm believer that, um, you will be better off by being able to share this. You had, um, you had a, a different way of dealing with cancer or coping with cancer as well. I know that you you wrote a blog, right? I did. Um, yeah. You know, I, I used one of the the sites that allows you to uh, share your story. Uh, for me, uh, I I, pro- I was processing as I was writing. Uh, you know, I was I was coming to terms with what I was going through at the time. You know, I said how we sort of kept some people at an arm's distance. This was actually a way where I was able to share with them more of what was happening. And uh, so they were along with me, even if they they weren't as close as as perhaps they might have liked to be. For me, uh, even looking back on it now, I, I read sort of what I was going through at the time. It does help me to reflect on on my own experience and, and what I went through. Really interesting. And I think it's a good way to keep people in the loop as well. So you don't always have to answer questions just relating to the cancer, right? Yeah. I, you know, I, I think the more that we can humanize the process, the better. Hopefully through, you know, sharing my story with my friends who maybe shared it with someone else, uh, they get a, a, a little better sense of, of what it's like for a person on the inside and uh, how, they can, how they can help support them. So Keith, uh, on the topic of uh, support, I I know your wife has been tremendous support, uh, your daughters as well. Is there any, anything in particular that have been uh, sort of monumental in this journey, any particular kind of support that has really helped you? 
Yeah, it, it there there is, and it's related to to my wife and and something actually that she went through that really inspired me as as I was uh, contemplating you know my own post cancer journey. You know, she is a long distance runner, and that's just part of our active family lifestyle. But you know, some people go farther than others, and so uh, she actually. Uh, had trained for uh, a hundred mile trail race. It's called the the Western States Endurance Run, and um, it's this massive undertaking. When she was training for that, uh, we actually got all the way to uh, the day or two before the race, and there were uh, wildfires up in the mountains uh, in California. They were so close and so bad. After, after all of this training, after all she had gone through, uh, the race got canceled. We were up there ready for everything to happen. And, you know, she went through this really horrible letdown. So she actually looked at me and she goes, do you mind if I train for another year to do this again? And <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, you didn't do all this for nothing. Absolutely. Uh, but so then the, the very following year, she had the opportunity to, to do that race. And, and I had the opportunity to support her during that and to see just how absolutely grueling that kind of an event uh, could be. And she went through her ups and downs during that race at her, her moments of uh, contemplation, shall we say, and, and she pushed through and, and she made it uh, and she completed the entire thing. When, when then I was going through my ordeal, I, you know, I thought back to, you know, what she had gone through and, and experienced. And, and I thought, you know, I can do this too. I can find a way to push through. I can find a way to uh, persevere, you know? So we, we had kind of our own special bond there uh, <laughs> in suffering, <laughs> which, you know, I, I think that's, uh, you know, how it works for, for us sometimes, but uh, there is a bond that's created there as well. It's a beautiful thing. If we do a follow-up on this, we need to invite your wife as well, I think. And when it comes to patient groups and similar things, were you part of a patient group after you've been diagnosed? I was not. And I didn't get connected with other lung cancer patients until much later on. And that's something that I wished I had been able to do sooner. I'll be honest, I was scared. I was, I was just scared to show up in a, in a room of people uh, and, and talk about my lung cancer. And, and it wasn't until much, much later until I felt comfortable being able to do that. And then I, I recognized how absolutely freeing that experience was to be around other people who had similar uh, I mean, there's such a range in lung cancer, but, you know, I, I, I was able to share my story and one, one other gentleman in the room walked up to me afterwards and he goes, you and I have the same thing. We have almost exactly the same thing. And I'd never experienced that connection with, uh, another cancer patient, uh, until that moment. Yeah. I think a lot of cancer patients experience that, um, and I mean, patient organizations have been around for, for such a long time. They're, uh, they play a critical role in many patients' lives. 
obviously you've gone your way, but what would you, if you could go back in time, what would you, what advice would you have been given yourself at the day of diagnosis? Yeah, I, I would advise someone to absolutely get connected with a patient support organization in, in some way, shape or form um, through whatever mechanism works for them. Um, it, you, you need to hear from other people who, who have been through the experience. It's, it's so helpful and, and healing in its own way to, to hear from people who have been successful. You know, it's so easy to concentrate on the negative and, and to hear the statistics and, and to get discouraged by that. And yet here's someone else who is telling me a, a success story and, and maybe I can be one of those two. Yeah. Very nice. So Keith, at the end of our podcast, we always ask our guests to sort of give some advice uh, to the people that they can relate to. From a patient perspective, what advice or words of comfort would you give to to people that have just been diagnosed or that are undergoing treatment uh, as of now? Uh, the, The thing that I would really want to reinforce for them is uh, that not to limit themselves by what they think they can or can't do at the time. Uh, going through a cancer diagnosis and, and the treatment itself is, is a very, very scary and challenging period. And um, it's easy. It's, it's really easy to put limits on yourself and say, well, that, that's just not possible. I can't do that. Um, or that, that I, I can't possibly get to uh, some better place than where I am right now. And I would say, yes, you, you, you can. Uh, uh, it won't likely be easy, uh, but with the, the proper application of, of effort and, and will and support, uh, those things all working together can really improve the situation for people. Go ahead and dream of things that you still want to do and that you might be able to achieve uh, because you actually might be able to achieve those. That's really what I want people to hopefully hold on to uh, and and uh, keep dreaming big. Keep dreaming big. Uh, I like that. And I think you're, you're living proof of the fact that cancer can be a catalyst for a positive change. So... Thank you very much for for sharing your story, Keith. Thank you, Sebastian. Wow. It's hard not to walk away from a conversation with Keith feeling totally inspired and motivated to go out and do all those things in your life that you've been putting off. And while it might be easy to come away thinking that Keith is some kind of superhuman, which he obviously is, there are also some important universal truths in his story. The importance of family, the importance of friends and fellow patients to help guide and support you on your cancer journey. The cancer conversations are hard, but also beneficial. And that you don't really have to tell everyone everything and not all the time. That anyone can be impacted by lung cancer and not just a stereotypical smoker image that we might have in our heads. And that it's super important to take any aches or pains that you might be experiencing seriously so that you can get diagnosed and treated earlier when your treatment options actually might differ. My thanks again to Keith for sharing his story so openly with us, and I hope you also feel inspired and uplifted by his words. 
To keep up to date on new podcast episodes, you can follow at Böhringer on Twitter or at Böhringer Ingelheim on Facebook. I'm on Instagram at Seb Hermelin. We also encourage you to reach out to us with any feedback or questions that you might have. And if you'd like to hear more, then please subscribe to the podcast series and share this podcast with anyone else who is taking cancer on. <laughs>